Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. There's a really sweet, beautiful presence of Jesus in this place. And I'm so grateful for that because the world gives us the opposite, right? They give us chaos and noise and chatter and all of the all of the things that we all walk through in our daily life. And then we get to come into a place together and if we allow for the spirit to have room, it's not that we control the spirit. It's that if we're in a posture where he has space to do what he wants to do, it's such a beautiful thing. So we're in the fifth week, I think, of our Revelation series. And if you maybe haven't been here the last few weeks or you're, you're visiting today, we're in a six-month-long series on Revelation. And we're so very excited about this. And the reason I'm so very excited about this is because revelation literally means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And I can think of no better topic to spend six months on than Jesus. We could talk about everything else, all of the other passages in the scripture, and they're they're wonderful, they're amazing, but it all comes down to Jesus. This whole book, from the front to the back, points to Jesus. So we're going to spend six months talking about it, and it's going to be awesome. And it has been awesome. But we are in the middle of the letters. And so the first two weeks, Chris and Phil did a phenomenal job giving us an introduction. And then Jason and Katie um, taught on the first two letters. And great job, you guys. Absolutely phenomenal job. Jason's not here, but I've told him a few times. And then today, um, we're going to look at the third letter. So if you are able, would you stand on your feet as I read this letter to the church in Pergamum? Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antimus, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit And understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna 
that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here in this place. We thank you that your word is alive and active. That this letter that was written to that church in Pergamum all those years ago, it was written to them, but it is for us also today. May your word penetrate our hearts, Jesus. May we walk out of here knowing a piece of your character, of who you are, a little bit more today. Jesus, be with me as I communicate this message that you've given me. May my heart be soft to your spirit, and may everyone with ears to hear, may they hear what you have to say to them as an individual. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You can sit down, get comfy. So as um, Jason and Katie both showed us in the first two letters, the way that Jesus made these letters really personal continues to this church in Pergamum also. See, he chose specific words and imagery that spoke precisely to the people that he was giving this letter to. So I want to give you a little bit of background on Pergamum. Pergamum was a city, we've got a map up here that I'm going to uh, take one out of Phil's playbook, sort of. This is, this is like a tiny bit nerdy. I'm, I'm going, I'm going. Just give me a second. Here. Come here, come here. All right, Phil, would you show us where Pergamum would have been? Right there. Yes, Pergamum. Okay. Okay. So, and then we're down here we have Ephesus. So that was uh, the first letter to the church. Yes, right there. Yes. Yes, there's Patmos. Yep, the island where, where John was. Okay. But this is, um, thank you, Phil. That was very helpful. <laughs> I couldn't have done it without you. So this, because I think it's so important for us to remember that this is, this actually was a place that existed. It's not some mystical, far-off place that doesn't, it still exists today. So this is Turkey right here. And all of those letters that were written, those cities, were, are in, were in modern-day Turkey, okay? So you've got Crete. This is, we were, we were supposed to go here, babe, in 2020 for our anniversary. And then some crazy bat thing happened and messed it up. But this is, this is where Pergamum was. Okay, and Pergamon was situated on a high rock. The city was built up high on a rock, and it was a very prominent and prosperous city in the Roman Empire. Rome was in control of the world at that point, and it was extremely diverse. There, was, there were a lot of different nations and cultures that lived there. There were Greeks and Jews and all sorts of other cultures that lived in Pergamum. And when Jesus says in the very beginning of his, his oracle to them, he says, this is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. They knew exactly what he was talking about. See, the symbol for Pergamum was a sword. 
Pergamon was one of the few cities that in those days had been given the right of the sword. Anybody want to guess what that was? Capital punishment. They were one of the only cities. So they understood what a sword meant. In fact, a two-edged sword was probably used for carrying out capital punishment in the city. So when Jesus said, the one coming with the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth, they were like, what? We know what that means. So I started to say, well, why was Jesus using such fierce imagery, like warlike words to describe this? What did that mean? Isn't doesn't that seem a little un-Jesus-like? Isn't he supposed to be meek and mild? I don't, maybe he was as a baby. I, I had a meek and mild baby, and I had a not meek and mild baby. <laughs> and they're both wonderful. And maybe Jesus was a meek and mild baby. He could have been. But that's not where his story ends. That's actually not how he's coming back. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit um, to Revelation 19. And don't worry, this we'll go back to it in a few weeks. But I want you to see this. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Again, this is the vision that was given to John, and this is what he saw. Then I saw heaven open, and a white ho- horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except for himself. I want you to remember that phrase. We're going to go back to it. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. Can you imagine that? Just get that picture in your head. What a beautiful, magnificent picture that is of Jesus coming back with the armies of heaven on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. That doesn't sound super meek and mild, does it? He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of all Lords. Now, meek and mild is a part of Jesus' character. It is one way to describe him, but it is not the only way. And sometimes we get caught up in putting him into a box and saying, this is how we need to act because this is who Jesus is. And we've just done ourselves a disfavor, a disservice by putting him into one box and one box only. Because Jesus is coming back as a ruler, but as a ruler who's coming to deal with evil and the forces of darkness once and for all. He's going to have to be a warrior to do that. So while his words in these letters might seem a little bit intolerant, it's because he's intolerant of anything that enslaves people. He knows that false teaching that the world amplifies does just that. 
It enslaves people to sin. And he is unwilling to stay silent as his bride gets swallowed up in the entrapments that the devil has set for us. And that's what's happening in this letter. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus uses this imagery of a two-edged sword to show that his word, the truth, will divide and separate, split apart anything that attempts to masquerade as truth. He's coming to deal with that. So let's go a little bit deeper into this. We're going to go back to Revelation 1 now. And we're going to read the picture that we're given of Jesus. Revelation 1, verse 12. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Now, I want you to imagine this. John was John the disciple, John the apostle, walked with Jesus when Jesus was here as a man for three years. So John knew what Jesus looked like as a man. I think that's why he says someone like the Son of Man. Because now John has seen him, and he sees parts of his humanity, parts of who Jesus was when he was here on earth, but in his full divine glory. So John recognizes him, but he sees him in his divine glory. He says he was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp, two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. So I asked myself, why was the sword coming from his mouth? I mean, when we typically think of a warrior, we don't think of them carrying their swords in their mouths, right? That, that would be awkward. Has anyone ever carried a sword before? Literally one person. Okay. I think we need to start carrying swords or something. Seriously? One person. Okay. Where do you carry your sword? Okay, okay, in your, with your hand, right? Right, okay. So Jesus' Jesus' sword is coming out of his mouth. So that has to mean something. Also, John, who was given this revelation, wrote the gospel of John, John 1. And listen to the very first thing that he says. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now we're going to jump to Ephesians 6. Kiddos know this one. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. 
For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword coming out of his mouth was the word of God by the word of God. Look at this. Word in both of these passages, in John 1 and in Ephesians 6, is the same word, logos. Logos is is translated two different ways. It is both the written, inspired word of God, the scripture, and it is logos, the person, Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the word. And I am coming to divide between what is of me and what is not of me. He is saying, I love you so desperately. Remember back from Jason's message a couple weeks ago when he said it was a lovesick cry from a bridegroom to his bride. That's what Jesus is saying here. He said, I'm so desperately in love with you that I don't want you to be caught up in the destruction that is going to take place. And then we see, as we just read in Ephesians, that he's given us the power of the sword as well. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I love that Rochelle opened up service today by saying, have you been reading it? Have you been getting into it? Because it will change your life. It's living and active. It will transform you. It will give you everything you need to walk through all of the things that we walk through every single day. And Jesus is saying that. He's saying you also can distinguish between what is true and what is a cheap copy of the truth. He has that power and he has given us that power. And that's what this warning to the church in Pergamum was all about. But we're going to go back just for a moment back to Pergamum so we understand a little bit more of this. Revelation 2, verse 13. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Last week, Katie so beautifully showed us The tenderness of Jesus' words, I know. He was saying this to the Christians in the church in Pergamum. He was saying, I know that even though the whole city has given themselves over to the ways of the devil, you have stayed faithful to me. I know that. I see that. See, Pergamum was known for its temples and its idol worship. It was the center of Roman Caesar worship. In fact, it had the first ever temple built to Roman Caesar. They would go into the temple just to worship this guy, Roman Caesar. It also had a temple for Zeus. You want to know what they called Zeus? He was the greatest of the Greek gods, and they called him Zeus the Savior. And Zeus's temple sat up high on top of the hill, on top of the city, and everybody in the city lived under the shadow of Zeus's temple. 
So Jesus is saying to them, I know. I know what evil you live in the shadow of every single day. And you haven't denied me. And not even that, it says you refused to deny me. That implies to me that they've been asked to deny him and they've still refused. I mean, it's one thing to not deny Jesus when no one is asking you to, right? Like it's pretty easy. But what happens when somebody says choose? Choose Jesus or don't. It gets a whole lot harder when you're being put under pressure to say, oh, yeah, I really, mm, I mean, I kind of like I go to church, but I'm not really into the Jesus stuff. It gets a whole lot harder to deny Jesus when all of a sudden your social status might be threatened, when all of a sudden you might be canceled, when all of a sudden you might lose all of your followers on TikTok because you are not tolerant. It gets a whole lot harder to deny Jesus when there's pressure. And Jesus knows all of this about you, too. He's saying to you, I know. I know that you haven't denied me, even when it's been hard. So as we move forward, I, I want you to hear this not as a harsh rebuke from an unloving authority, but rather a plea and a warning from one Jesus, who loves you so desperately and wants to see you free. See, we've all had unloving authorities in our lives, haven't we? And sometimes when we read something that is a warning, we read it through the lens of the harsh authority that we've had in our life. So when we read this, it sounds to us like an unloving parent, what they might say in anger, or a harsh boss, how they might come against us. And we read it that way. We read it like, I'm so angry at you. Can't you even get it right? You're stupid. Man, you just never get it right, do you? That's the way we read these words from Jesus, but it's not that. It's not how he's speaking them. He's speaking them as a loving parent who understands that their responsibility is to love and train up a child in the way that they should go. Instead, he's saying it like, when I discipline my child, I love you so much. That was a mistake that you just made, but you can say you're sorry right now and repent and make it right, and I forgive you, you are forgiven, and I know you're able to make a better choice. That's the way we read this, the words of Jesus, not as a harsh rebuke, but as a loving instruction from a father who desperately, desperately wants us to be free. So as we move on, listen through that lens. Jesus goes on to say, I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
Earlier, Jesus has commended them for standing strong against pressures from the outside. But then he goes on to say, you're tolerating some things from the inside that are sin. It wasn't the pressure from outside the church that they were tolerating. They were pushing back against that. They were standing strong in that. It was the people inside the church who were bringing in false ideas and allowing practices that went directly against the teachings of Jesus. He names two of them specifically, eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual sin. He even gives a little bit of a throwback to the Old Testament when Balaam, who was a prophet for God, was so caught up in wanting the attention from a foreign king that he actually convinces the foreign king to entice the Israelites into practices and sin that went against the way that God had asked them to live their lives. And so Jesus is telling the church in Pergamon, you're doing the same thing Balaam did. You're tolerating these people and their false teachings. And I think we need to ask ourselves, do we do that? Listen, he didn't say they were participating in the sin. He said they were tolerating it. They were staying silent when false ideas were being taught. They were not engaging with the sword of the spirit and using the authority of the word to call it out. And he calls for them to repent of it. Not repent of participating in the sin, but repent of even tolerating the sin. And I have to ask us, is there anything that we tolerate that we just let happen and we don't say anything and we stay silent, even though it goes directly against what Jesus, how Jesus has asked us to live our lives? Now, listen, I am not talking about people that don't know Jesus. We treat that a little bit differently. Yes, we still use the sword of the spirit. We still use truth to help guide them and to show them. But I'm specifically talking about inside the church, we as fellow Christians, fellow followers of Jesus, what are we tolerating in one another? Is there something that a Christian brother or sister that you see happening in their life that is sin that you're tolerating instead of calling out in love and truth. Now, I'm a little hesitant to say that because it can so easily be weaponized. The only way you can do that is if you first have dealt with what is going on in your own heart and mind. If you have gone before the Father, you have taken the log out of your own eye, and you go to a brother or sister in love and truth, and you say, man, I see this being allowed in your life, and I'm just worried that it's keeping you from freedom in your relationship with Jesus. But do not do that until you first have come to the altar, whether it's this one or one in your bedroom, and dealt with your own issues. Because it will not come out as love and truth if you are still living in sin yourself. But then I think you should ask, we should all ask ourselves too, is there something in my life 
that others are tolerating because they're too afraid of how I might respond if they do call it out. There have been a lot of times when I haven't called something out in a friend or one of you because I just, I want to be liked. I don't want you to be mad at me. I don't want to risk your wrath towards me. Church, we have to stop tolerating sin in each other's lives. We live in a world that says we need to tolerate all sorts of things. Sadly, we live in a world that says we tolerate killing babies, even to the point of after birth. Do you know in Australia, if a baby is aborted and still alive, they have laws on their books, and there are some states that this is starting to happen in too, that the baby is left to die. And we tolerate it. What about the chemical castration of children? We're tolerating it. We might not be, but the world is. We're saying, well, they just decided they want to be a different gender. They decided that they don't like the way that they were born, and so we're just, we're, we're just going to tolerate this. We're going we're gonna to accept this. And those are some glaringly obvious ones, right? Like pretty obvious to see, for us to see that, that that doesn't line up with Scripture. But what about some lesser, lesser sins that we easily tolerate? Some of the things here that we might tolerate, like gossip like speaking negatively about your spouse, like sitting in self-pity, like idolizing culture. What about those things? We may not be to- tolerating the chemical castration of children. We might, may not be to- tolerating uh, aborting babies, but we're still tolerating sin. Tolerance is not a biblical virtue. Patience is. Graciousness is. Humility is. But tolerance isn't. Let's make sure we're not confusing other biblical virtues with tolerance. See, Jesus wasn't rebuking them for sinning. He was rebuking them for tolerating the sin. And not because we are harsh, unloving people. We should be the most loving, accepting people on this planet. But because like Jesus, we should love people so deeply and so much that we are not willing for them to stay enslaved in sin and bondage. See, the false teachers in the church in Pergamum were saying, it's okay. It's okay to eat that food. Just go to those feasts in the city. Eat that food that was offered to idols. They were even using parts of the gospel, things like grace and mercy, to justify that all of those practices were okay and allowed because it was covered by grace and mercy. 
They used a half-truth of the gospel to justify their own selfish desires. Sound familiar? They took the parts of the gospel that they wanted, and they ignored the parts that didn't line up with their actions. And you get in some dangerous territory when you start tearing pages out of your Bible to make it say or not say something to justify your sin. Another thing that set Pergamum apart um, from the other cities of that day was their library. They had the largest library of any city in those ancient days. Their library housed 20,000 scrolls, which was a lot for the ancient world. They loved knowledge. They took pride in getting as much information as they could about all sorts of topics. And while this might seem like a very positive thing, and it was in one way, what it was actually doing was creating a war in the city. It was creating a war of ideas. There was a battle going on in the city, and it was a battle for the minds of people. I know we don't know anything about that today. I mean, we don't have a lot of information available to us at all, ever, But it was this idea, it was this war for these ideas, like which one can beat out the other one? Which one can shout the loudest? Which one can get the most attention? Which scroll gets checked out from the library the most? Which book made the number one list? And this idea of following Jesus that was starting to take, just take the world by storm was being watered down by all of the other information that was in Pergamum. So let's go back just for a moment to the food that was offered to idols. This has always really intrigued me because I was, I was like, okay, it, I don't know. It's just food, right? So it might not seem super important to us, but it was really culturally relevant in their day. See, in early AD, cities would hold these elaborate feasts that would go on for days in honor of their gods. And attending these feasts would give you social status. It allowed you to have better access in your business. It connected you to the in crowd. But it was also seen as a token of a covenant with the God that the feast was being held in honor of. It was never a neutral act to attend one of these feasts. It was like saying, I acknowledge this God as valuable. They they believed that attending one of these feasts established a connection between the feast goer or worshiper, as they were called, and the God that it was being held in honor of. So this wasn't just merely eating some food that had been baked over a fire in honor of a a stone god. This was a public expression of devotion to a god other than the one true God. And idolatry of any kind is never a neutral act. The things you do in the spiritual realm 
every single thing you do in the spiritual realm that you participate in or that you tolerate always have spiritual consequences. So today's idols aren't made out of wood and stone and have names like Zeus. But they are idols of culture and art and music and political agendas and lifestyles and self-indulgence and even religious movements. And the list could go on and on and on. And I'm not bringing attention to all of this because I want to be the mean parent who wants to hammer us all. It's because Jesus has something so much better for us. He's saying, listen, why are you fooling around eating at tables of lesser gods when I have the best feast possible for you? Many months ago, the Lord showed us that we were entering a Psalm 23 season for this church. And I believe we are still in that season right now. It's a Kairos moment, a special set-apart time that the Lord has appointed for us here in this church. Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. He is a feast for us, the best feast for us. But we don't get to sit at that feast if we're sitting at lesser feasts of idols and tolerating sin. See, idol worship of any kind, no matter how insignificant it might seem, opens you up to the unseen spiritual world and whatever demonic agenda and spirit is behind the success of that thing. Behind the success of that musician or movie or social media fad or false teaching. And the moment you tolerate or participate in it, it instantly, that demonic spirit instantly gains access to you as you participate or tolerate it. Church, we have to stop tolerating idol worship. We either feast at his table or we feast at a lesser table. There's no neutral ground. You're at one or the other. And what's so beautiful about this is that Jesus says, I prepare a feast for you in the presence of your enemies. They have to sit and watch you enjoy it. So you sit and you enjoy a feast made for you by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and your enemies have to watch. Or you go sit at the enemy's table and you get sucked into all that comes with that. 
one really amazing thing about this time in history is that all these feasts were being held in honor of these false gods in all of these ancient cities. But as the gospel began to spread, as the disciples and those who followed Jesus begin to take the gospel out and Christians begin to speak the truth and people were truly set free, guess what happened to the feasts? They start dwindling. They stopped having them. And you know what replaced them? Celebrations that honored Jesus. Cultural movements that honored Jesus and the gospel. This is exactly what we are called to do today. Instead of participating and tolerating the practices of the world, we offer the full gospel, not watered down, not pages pulled out, but we watch the word, Jesus, the word, the scripture, the word, the logos set people free. Jesus ends these instructions to them with this, repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent just simply means stop, turn around, go the other direction. Stop, turn around, go the other way. Jesus doesn't mince words, though. He says, repent or I will come against you. He doesn't want to fight with you. He doesn't want to have to divide between what is true and what is untrue, but he will because he is holy and righteous and just, and there has to be a reckoning for sin. But he loves us so much that he warns us. And for some of us today, that's what we need to hear. It's time to repent, to stop tolerating the ways of the world, and to turn the other way. But here's the good news. Jesus loves us so very much that he doesn't just give us a rebuke. He leaves us with so much good news at the end of this letter that you are going to walk out of here being like, yes. Some of you are going to start jumping out of your seats in about five seconds when you hear what Jesus says at the end of this. Verse 17. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. So last week as I was working on this message, I sat on my front porch. I'd been there all day. And I was researching and studying and using all the nerdy tools that we have to do this. And I had pages and pages of information about Pergamum, about this letter. And it's all great stuff, really exciting, informative stuff. Phil's down there nodding his head like, yes, love it. But it just felt like that. It felt like information. I didn't have the word that the Lord wanted me to share with you today. And I was actually pretty frustrated about that. Because, to be honest, none of us just need more information. And I didn't want to stand up here today 
and just give you more information. We need a word from the Lord. We need the word to speak directly to us, to change us, to set us free. So I realized that I needed to go for a walk to clear my head. I grabbed my Bible and I put on my mud boots because we live in the woods now. You got to wear mud boots. And I started walking through our woods. And as I walked, I was crying out to the Lord out loud. I mean, the deer can hear me, but no one else was around. So it was easy to cry out to the Lord. I said, Lord, what are you saying to me in this? What do you want to say to your church in Peoria? I know what you said to Pergamum. I have all the information. But what is the word for us today? And I heard nothing. So I kept walking. We have a lot of acreage. So it was a long walk. But pretty soon I came down to a clearing in our hayfield, and we have some picnic tables there. And I sat down on the picnic tables, and I asked the Lord again, what do you want to say? What do you want to say to us? Still nothing. Okay. Well, I guess I'll read it again. So I went back, and I read the letter again. And I read it again. I don't know. I probably read it six or seven times. And then I heard the Lord say, look at the numbers. So I looked at the numbers. Revelation 2, verse 14 says, But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. And as soon as I saw the 214, I heard him say, it's about the intimacy that I want with you. It's about the intimacy that what I want with my church in Peoria, Illinois. This word is about intimacy with Jesus. It is not about a rebuke. It is a plea from our God to us to choose him over everything else, to choose his feast above all lesser feasts. It's about his longing for us and his desire for us to long him so much that all else falls lower than our longing for for ourselves. He's inviting us into this place where we don't even consider tolerating what the world does because we know the other option is him. And what he offers is far beyond anything, anything the world offers. But then I saw something else. Sexual sin is one of the two things mentioned in this letter to Pergamum along with eating food offered to idols. So why that sin? Surely those weren't the two only sins that were being allowed. I mean, that would be ridiculous. You can't do any of this, but these two are fine. So why that? Well, I believe it's because the world equates sex with intimacy. And they offer 
us that as the ultimate intimacy. So the enemy was saying, do this and you'll be accepted and loved. Do this and it will fulfill you. But it's a cheap replacement for the intimacy that Jesus offers us. Listen, this is not a bash on sex. Sex inside of marriage between a man and a woman is a beautiful God-designed act that was made for intimacy between a husband and wife and brings a spiritual connection between those two people. What I'm talking about is anything outside of that. Anything outside of that that the world says this will fulfill you. This is intimacy. See, the devil has to mimic true intimacy with Jesus because he will never have the real thing. Verse 17, to everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Jesus is saying, anyone who is victorious in this, anyone, I have hidden manna for them. Hidden away just for you. Manna was what God gave the Israelites in the wilderness to feed them, to sustain them. It was food, actual food to nourish them. But hidden manna, listen, is spiritual sustenance. It's divine knowledge and blessing. It's, it's special, intimate communion with God just between you and him that he has reserved for you. In John 6, 35, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Hidden manna, the bread of life. It's intimacy with Jesus that satisfies every longing we could ever have. That's what's available to you. That's what he has stored away just for you. Secrets that he wants to tell you. A couple weeks ago, Taylor got up here and she shared about um, our testimonies and we can submit our testimonies to be recorded on video. And I'm like, that's amazing. I've got one. And I right away sent an email to her. And the next day, I realized I'm not supposed to share that with everybody else. That was between the Father and me. That was supposed to be intimate between the Father and me. Now listen, we are supposed to testify. Yes, absolutely, we are supposed to do that. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which means that what he did before, he will do again. So yes, we testify, but there's something so sacred and intimate and beautiful about sometimes something that you have with the Father just being between you and him. And we don't have to post about it or make a video about it or tell our best friend or sometimes even tell our spouse. There's depths of intimacy that Jesus wants with every single one of us if you want it but he is a kind father who will not force himself on you and if that's not enough the hidden manna he goes even further 
He says, I will give to each a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Benny, I was going to have you hand me a stone, but they're right here. The church in Pergamum also knew exactly what that meant. See, white stones were used for a couple of different things. One of the things a white stone was used for was in their justice system. If a white stone was used, it meant acquittal or favor. If a black stone was used, it meant guilt or disapproval. Jesus is saying, you are not guilty. Your favor, you have my favor. You've been set free. The other thing that a white stone symbolized was friendship. I loved this so much. When two friends would part ways and they wanted to seal their commitment to each other, they would write their name on the stone and then they would swap stones. So if Rochelle and I were parting ways, We'd each take a stone, and I'd write my name on it, and she'd write her name on it, and we'd swap. And it was a way of saying, we're parting ways, but we're going to take a part of each other along with us as a keepsake to cherish the bond that we have with each other. Jesus was saying that to them. He was saying, I'm giving you a white stone as a reminder of our bond with one another. But I'm not just giving you a white stone. I'm giving you one with a new name on it. A name so secret and so special that only you and I know what it means. See, in those days, they knew what that meant too. When God would make a covenant with someone, when he would call them into a new purpose, he would change their name. He changed Abram to Abraham. He changed Sarai to Sarah. He changed Jacob to Israel. He changed Simon to Peter. He changed Saul to Paul. And Jesus is saying, this is what I have for you. I have a new name for you. I have a new anointing to put upon you. I have a new purpose for you. You have hidden manna from me. You have access to secrets and revelations from my word if you choose to feast with me at my table and forsake all the lesser tables. And I have a white stone for you. It's a sign that you are not guilty. It is a sign that you have my approval and it is a sign of my friendship with you. Jesus is calling you into that intimacy with him. It's there for you. He desperately, desperately wants that with you. And I believe today that some of you are about to get a new name. And I on purpose didn't bring Sharpie markers up here because it's a secret name. And if you want to, when we sing this last song, you come up and you grab one of these white stones and you ask Jesus, what are you changing my name to? 
What secret name do you have for me? And then you write that on your stone and you put it somewhere where you will see it and you'll be reminded of the intimacy that is available to you through a Savior who loves you, who died for you, who is coming back to divide between what is true and what is not true. And he wants you with him at his feast. Would you stand up on your feet and pray with me? You're so loving. Father, you're so loving to us. Just as a parent disciplines a child that they love and then wraps their arms around them and speaks softly and kindly to them, tells them who they are, reminds them of who they are. You are that way to us, Father. You are a loving Father. Jesus, you are a loving bridegroom who longs for intimacy with his bride, and you have given us access to it. You have called out to us. You're saying, I'm right here waiting for you. I'm right here waiting for you to come sit at my table, feast with me and have communion and share in my glory. Jesus, would you stir that desire up in us that the things at lesser tables would not look appealing, would not draw us in, that our eyes would be turned up towards you, fixed on you, our gaze fixed on the one who holds the whole world in his hands. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name.